Hello, and welcome to Parallel, a tech podcast with accessibility sprinkles. I'm Shelley Brisbane, your host, and this is episode 20, except it's not exactly a regular episode of Parallel. In fact, it is my documentary, 36 Seconds That Changed Everything, How the iPhone Learned to Talk. I'd planned all along to turn my documentary, which I talked to you about two weeks ago before my interview with Sarah Hurliger, into a podcast, into an episode of Parallel. But uh, here's the thing. When I released it on June 19th, a lot of people asked for the podcast version. So instead of waiting for next week, my regular parallel posting day, I thought I would just drop it in the feed today. And in addition, later on, you will be hearing bonus content from the documentary as additional episodes of Parallel. I conducted so many great interviews with users and developers and people who observe the iOS accessibility trajectory. And so I'm going to present some of those full interviews as both bonus content for my documentary and episodes of Parallel. So I hope you enjoy those. For now, if you want to contact me, you can find me on Twitter at Shelly, S-H-E-L-L-Y. You can tweet the show at Parallel Pods, or you can subscribe or find more info about the show at Relay.fm slash Parallel. If you want to know all there is to know about the documentary, that is 36seconds.org. Now, without further ado, let's listen, shall we? I'm Shelly Brisbane, and this is 36 Seconds That Changed Everything, How the iPhone Learned to Talk. This is one device. And we are calling it iPhone. Today, today Apple is going to reinvent the phone. In 2007, the iPhone took the tech world by storm. And I was there for Steve Jobs' big announcement. Here was a tiny device that combined a cell phone an iPod, and a link to the internet. And you connected to it all solely via a touchscreen. And six months after Jobs announced the phone, thousands of eager buyers got their hands on it. Many of them had stood in line for hours to pay hundreds of dollars for a rectangle of plastic and glass. The iPhone has been called the most successful single product in technology history. And it has spawned an economy of app developers and would-be imitators, too. But when those lines formed around Apple stores and news outlets devoted special coverage to the hottest thing in mobile tech ever, one group of potential fans remained on the sidelines. They had the $500 price of admission, or many did. But for them, the iPhone was a disappointment, a step backwards, a slap in the face even. The cold, smooth piece of glass with its flawless looks and choice of cheery ringtones locked those enthusiasts out. If you had a disability, the iPhone parade passed you by. And no wonder. How could a deaf person understand someone on the other end of a call? How could a blind person know where to tap on a touchscreen? How could a person with a motor disability press the home button? In 2007, even those who were being left out asked these questions. Even people with disabilities wondered how and whether the door to progress would ever open for them. But this is not a story of exclusion. This is a story of how everything changed exactly two years later. How a device noted for its visual design learned to talk. How a group of people who were initially shut out achieved not only equality with their non-disabled peers, but a measure of independence that no one, 
not even the designers at Apple could have truly anticipated. On June 19, 2009, the iPhone became accessible. Today, the smartphone has come so far that it's easy to take it for granted. Most of us carry one and depend on it to stay in touch, remain productive on the road, and even find our way along that road to our next destination. That's just as true for those of us who are blind, have a hearing loss, or experience physical disabilities. And in addition to the thousands of apps that an iPhone user with a disability can use just the way anyone else would, a slew of clever tools designed to meet particular needs have made our phones indispensable in unique ways. Person, 49-year-old woman with brown hair looking happy. Our menu is full of great tasting items that will get you going and keep you running throughout your busy day. We use the camera to identify objects or colors. Donuts. We read restaurant menus. All-day breakfast sandwiches. We navigate safely by foot and transit. We hear more of what's happening in our environment. We learn in ways that make the most sense based on our abilities. We thrive. And this technology, whether held in one hand or mounted on a wheelchair, streamed through hearing aids or displayed on screen in big, bold letters, is the very same technology you use to make your life better. To understand how far we've come, we need to travel back to the mid-aughts, before the iPhone. Cell phones, for pretty much everyone, were just phones. Some had internet access, but many didn't, especially in the United States, which was slower than other parts of the world to adopt truly smartphone tech. Early iPhone buyers then weren't just craving something pretty or trendy, though iPhones certainly were both of these. With an iPhone, many held the internet in their hand for the first time. And it was the iPhone's most striking feature, the touchscreen, that locked people with a variety of disabilities out. Jonathan Mosen, a New Zealand native who has spent most of his career reviewing technology specifically designed for blind people and who's worked for major companies who designed it, was happy with his phone in 2007, but he saw how the larger world's quick adoption of the iPhone was likely to leave people like him behind. I was concerned about the drift that I was seeing. It was very clear to me that market share was moving very quickly to the iPhone and everybody was talking about iPhone. And I remember picking up a friend's iPhone and, and feeling this blank piece of glass, essentially, with just a, a button on the bottom of the glass thinking, man, we are going to be locked out of this thing and it's a real concern. Why were people like Mosin so far-sighted, pun intended, about how important the iPhone would become and why they needed access to it too? Some of it came from their own hard experience with technology. When I was growing up, I did a lot of my work in Braille, and everyone else did theirs, you know, in print. That's Steve Sazen. He's an accessibility consultant in Minneapolis. So I had lots of devices and technology support, but it wasn't easy to integrate that with what other kids were doing. And so I was sort of always off by myself in my own little corner, literally and figuratively, and I always felt really, really excluded. In the early 2000s, Sazen was living in Maine and got worried when he heard that the state was planning to provide a laptop computer to every middle school student. 
What would it mean for blind kids if the state chose a computer without a screen reader, software that reads what's on the screen out loud? And there was reason to worry, because Apple was a leading bidder for the contract, and there was no screen reading software available on Apple's Mac computers then. If blind students couldn't use state-supplied computers in school, Sazed feared they would end up facing the kind of classroom isolation he remembers, probably using different devices than their peers, maybe even learning less. Sazen spoke out, even testifying before legislators about the risk of adopting technology blind kids couldn't use. He says Apple reached out to him to let him know that something new was coming. They introduced me to a thing they were developing, which became VoiceOver. At the time, it had some other name, and I forget even what it was. But they allowed me to start playing with it and other folks as well. Apple won the main school contract, and VoiceOver-equipped laptops eventually ended up in classrooms. And Sazen got himself a Mac, becoming a fan of the device and joining a small community of Mac-using blind people who kept in touch online and even recorded podcasts. Apple's approach to accessibility was unique. Starting in 2005, VoiceOver was included in the software that shipped with every new Mac. If you were blind and wanted to use Windows, you needed to buy screen reader software. JAWS was then the leading screen reader software for Windows, and it could cost $1,000 or more. So while Windows still dominated among blind computer users as it did in the wider world, the Mac, which had been completely inaccessible a few years before, had a toehold in the blindness community. And that was something of an accident. James Dempsey, who was a software developer at Apple for 15 years, spent part of his career working to make the Mac accessible. He says Apple had hoped someone else would make a Mac screen reader. But they did that thinking that a third party would write a screen reader for Mac OS X. And then when really nobody picked up that mantle to write a screen reader as a third party, Apple stepped in and developed the voiceover. Jonathan Mosen says the company Apple hoped would create that Mac screen reader was Freedom Scientific, which made the leading Windows screen reader JAWS. Perceiving that JAWS for Mac wouldn't have much of a market, Freedom Scientific decided against making a Mac screen reader. But that left Apple with a problem. If the company wanted to sell Macs to schools and colleges, it needed a screen reader. Apple didn't develop voiceover for Mac out of the goodness of their hearts. They developed voiceover for Mac because if they didn't, they were going to be in serious trouble with their key market, which was education. Computers were critical in schools, but in 2007, mobile devices were not. I don't know whether Apple planned all along for the iPhone to have a screen reader. Someday. But my educated guess is that they felt they could afford to wait, even if doing so would be frustrating and hurtful to those who had so recently embraced the Mac and its built-in screen reader. When the iPhone made its debut with no screen reader or other features for blind users, Steve Sazen felt a lot of what he had before the Mac got a screen reader. I was sad because I felt, oh, here's another time we're going to be left out and eventually someone's going to come along and make a special blindness-specific eye device. It'll be three versions old. It'll cost four times as much. And we'll just keep buying it because it's the only option that we have. Josh DeLioncourt, who lost his sight at age six, had used an Apple II computer as a kid and was among those who tried a Mac when voiceover came along. He more than tried. He became a fan. The iPhone launch left him disappointed. I thought, that sounds like the most incredible 
thing I have ever heard of in my life, and I am sad that I will never get to use it. <laughs> and on an episode of the MattCast podcast, Shane Jackson reminded listeners that aesthetics are important, even if you can't see. It was heartbreaking to me. I actually held someone's iPhone in my hand, and it was the most beautiful, sexy, sleek device. It was just flat. I mean, I don't know how else to describe it. As a blind person, it was just flat. And then this beautiful backing and curved, oh man, if it could just say one thing to me, if it could just, but it couldn't. (laughs) I felt that way too. I had been writing about Apple products as a journalist for years. I'm not a screen reader user, but I do have low vision, which means I increase the size of text and change the way my screen background looks to make it easier for me to see. But when I witnessed Steve Jobs unveiling the iPhone from the audience that day, I wondered whether I would be able to use it at all. And when I borrowed a friend's phone that first week after they went on sale, it was confirmed. The screen was too small, the background too bright, and the text too tiny. For the first time in 20 years, Apple had built a product I couldn't use. I'm fairly sure I cried about that. It's not as if there were no phone options in 2007. You could get a phone with a physical keyboard from Samsung, Nokia, or BlackBerry. And a lot of people still had flip phones, myself included. A blind person could buy a simple phone and stick to a few of its features, the ones that didn't depend on seeing a menu. Basically, you could make and receive phone calls and maybe text if your numeric keypad skills were good. Or, if you wanted more, you could buy a Windows mobile phone. To that, you needed to add screen reader software from one of two companies. Kara Quinn used a screen reader made by Code Factory on her Windows mobile phone. It was MobileSpeak, which was, you know, fantastic for what it did. But you had to pay more than the price of the phone itself just to get that phone to talk. The cost of screen reader software and a phone to run it on often approach the $500 price tag of the first iPhone. So skipping the Apple Store line wasn't necessarily a cost saving. And screen reader phones, unlike the iPhone with its built-in GPS receiver, couldn't help you get around as a blind person. For that, you could buy a specialized GPS device. It was heavy and not the least bit cool-looking. The original Trekker was this thing, but you had to wear it. It sort of was like a school science project thing. It was this strap thing that you wore around your neck, and the front of it had a cradle thing that would hold the little Palm Pilot. And then there was the GPS thing on the back of the neck, and cables ran through. But you had to, like, suit up. Better than nothing for many, but a reminder that living with a disability often means having fewer choices than others have, or doing things in ways that cost extra money, time, and backstrain, too. It would be wrong to say that the blind community, even the tech-savviest among them, were clamoring as one for an accessible iPhone in 2007. Some people didn't believe the Mac screen reader was as good as familiar Windows options. And didn't the lack of accessibility on the iPhone prove that Apple wasn't interested in people with disabilities? You could reach the people who made these screen readers. I was on sort of first-name basis with the developers of both Talks and Mobile Speak, and I could write to them and let them know about a bug or a feature that I felt was lacking, and quite often it would quickly get implemented. So that was a good thing. Mosin says that the small size of the market for blindness tech meant that the people who made the software were more responsive than he imagined a big company like Apple would be. Josh DeLioncourt got into his share of arguments with people who didn't like Apple or its screen reader. You know, a lot of these people had spent small fortunes on screen reading software for Windows and things like that. And they didn't like the idea of like, oh, maybe I didn't have to do that. Maybe I could buy this computer that just talks out of the box. 
In 2008, people who were hoping for more accessibility from Apple had a few reasons to be optimistic. But there was still a lot to be done. In the spring, the iTunes app for the Mac finally became accessible to blind users, meaning that the voiceover screen reader could now speak the names of songs and menus. Wait, wasn't the Mac already accessible? Well, even though voiceover could navigate the computer and many apps, some older ones, like iTunes, were not, even with voiceover, accessible. Now, Apple finally fixed that, and the iPod Nano, a tiny music player with a scroll wheel, not a touchscreen, got its own much simplified version of voiceover, too. When you sync your iPod from your computer, it made up audio files of all the things that it would ever need to say. Darcy Bernard had been an early Mac adopter, struggling with iTunes and teaching himself to make the most of voiceover. He says that even the iPod's addition of something like a screen reader gave him hope there would someday be an accessible iPhone. As it happened, Apple launched the iPhone App Store that year, too, a move that would have important consequences when and if the iPhone ever got a screen reader. Like baby animals and flowering plants, Apple rumors come to life in the spring. And in that season of 2009, guesses and some actual leaks about what Apple would announce at the annual developers conference in June began to appear online. There was a little bit of a leak. Somebody had said they'd seen reference made to voiceover in the code. Kara Quinn had become a Mac user. And she knew that the name of the Mac's screen reader popping up in code for the iPhone meant something big could be in the works. Mindful of how long it had taken for iTunes to become accessible, Court tried to keep things in perspective. We were hopeful, but not particularly optimistic that we'd have access to the whole thing. But maybe we, this would be the beginning, right? That we would get some access to what the iPhone had to offer. And then came June 8th, 2009. Thank you. Thank you very much. Welcome to the 2009 Worldwide Developers Conference. We have Hang on just a sec. I need to tell you a bit about how Apple announces things and how people tend to respond to those announcements. You've probably heard about Apple Keynotes. The company's CEO, Steve Jobs, when the iPhone was launched, Tim Cook now, leads a live event that includes highly produced videos, bragging about the company's sales, and lots of product announcements. In 2009, Steve Jobs was on medical leave, and so it was senior marketing VP Phil Schiller who opened the show. We'll hear more from him shortly. These days, Apple keynotes are live-streamed as they happen. So even if you're not there, you can watch from your phone or computer. In 2009, there was no official stream, though journalists in the audience broadcast video from their laptops, offering the stream online. And that's how the Apple enthusiast community was arrayed on June 8, 2009, huddled over their own computers, hoping the unofficial stream of the developers' conference keynote would keep working. Several people I talked to about this day told me there had been more inklings that something interesting for accessibility was coming to the iPhone. Besides the code leak in the spring, a few people got cryptic emails days before the keynote suggesting they might want to find a way to tune in. The event was long. There were new Mac laptops, new software for the Mac, and a new phone called the iPhone 3GS. And about four minutes before the two-hour mark, in the midst of a long list of new apps to be included on the iPhone 3GS, Phil Schiller switched slides, revealing an iPhone setting screen. The slide remained visible for the next 36 seconds as he spoke. We also care a great deal about accessibility. 
helping more and more people be able to use this great new technology and some great new accessibility settings in the iPhone 3GS. You go in the accessibility settings area and you find this voiceover. So if somebody needs to hear the, what they're touching with their finger for an email or web page, it'll read it to them. If you want to zoom in the display to have larger icons to be able to see it better, you can do that. If you want to invert the colors, if that helps your sight, that's better. We even can pipe mono audio through both or either sides of the headphone to help you if that helps with your hearing. So great features for accessibility. And it was over. No demo. Not even a pause for applause. In the pre-official stream days of 2009, the first record of Apple keynotes were the live blogs, usually kept by media people in the hall. At one hour, 56 minutes, a few live blogs from mainstream tech sites, including Macworld and Engadget, dutifully transcribed the mention of accessibility features like voiceover and mono audio support. CNET and the Mac Observer skipped accessibility entirely, going straight from the new Compass app at one hour 55 to the Nike Plus app at one hour 57. But among the people for whom voiceover meant the difference between being able to use the phone and not being able to use it at all, reactions were a little different. Voiceover is on the iPhone. They did it. They did it. They did it. Here in one one day, in one fell swoop, they've changed everything. Like on Twitter, I said, you know, I have no words. And it's, it's, it's just huge. Like, you know, not only is it, you know, a, a completely accessible phone, but it's just a completely new platform. It's just... I mean, people had said it was never going to happen, and it did, and it just, I don't know. We were saying yesterday it was never going to happen. That's Kara Quinn, Josh DeLioncourt, Holly Anderson, and Darcy Bernard on the day accessibility came to the iPhone. They recorded an episode of their podcast just minutes after the keynote wrapped up. Quinn remembers that feelings that day ran deep. Shock and awe. (laughs) Um, Amazement. Uh, I was very emotional. That whole day was spent for me being very emotional. Uh, It makes me emotional just thinking about it now. On Twitter, too, people were excitedly debating the meaning of Schiller's somewhat awkward 36-second feature recitation. Would voiceover do more than let you make a phone call? How about reading mail or text messages? Or taking pictures? Or using apps not made by Apple? Would there be games, maybe? How would Zoom or Invert Colors work? Voiceover a feature on the 3GS was almost glossed over. They didn't go into any great detail about it. And I remember that same day, I think, that they had this huge update on the accessibility section of Apple.com that basically explained how voiceover was going to work on the phone. So we, we weren't waiting long. Delioncourt was refreshing Apple's site, watching as updates rolled in. It quickly became clear to him that accessibility meant that the phone's home screen, basic features, and, crucially, apps from Apple and others would work with voiceover. I recently had the chance to ask what that day was like inside Apple. A lot of excitement. I think, you know, in doing something that was so new, wanting to make sure that people understood what the goal was, and and that they would embrace it. Sarah Herlinger has been at Apple for 13 years. She's global director of accessibility and policy initiatives for the company. You know, we really had wanted to do something extraordinary, and we were super thankful that the community really did embrace it. She says positive response to the iPhone accessibility announcements came quickly. But there was one more hurdle for those eager to get their hands on an iPhone. 
It was a long 11 days between the announcement and June 19, 2009, the first day you could buy an accessible iPhone in the United States. Yeah, I basically spent those two weeks figuring out, how can I do this? How can I make it work? Have I got enough money? (laughs) Scrambling to put together $500, breaking cell phone contracts, and, in some cases, switching to AT&T, the only U.S. carrier where you could use the iPhone. At least the waiting gave people time to read up on this new voiceover thing. Kara Quinn burned off her nervous energy by starting an email discussion list for blind iPhone users called V-iPhone. It's still active today. Literally, I didn't even wait to get the phone. (laughs) I was like, Josh, I want the premier iPhone list. And then it was Friday the 19th, and people had their phones, just in time for weekend marathons of trying gestures, attempting to type on a piece of glass, and learning how apps worked, all without benefit of vision. Steve Sawson hadn't even planned to get one at first, but curiosity got the better of him. I went to the AT&T store and I bought myself an iPhone and I was so mesmerized. I was able to do this at the same time as other people also were buying their phones. I didn't have to wait for a new version of the software to come out or an update to be made or someone cited to help me. I could just go to the AT&T store, buy my device, go home, plug it in with iTunes, I could start up voiceover and the thing just worked great. Ah, iTunes, which you needed on your computer in order to set up your iPhone, and which had conveniently become accessible the previous year. The new iPhone owners learned both from the user manual Apple provided online and from each other. Many I talked to say it wasn't hard to learn to use taps and flicks and multi-finger gestures, but it wasn't like anything they'd ever done before. It was such a different world. We were learning not just a new screen reader, but... A device with a type of UI that we've never experienced before. So it was trying to get your head around how do touchscreens work at all and how does the screen reader work as another layer on top of that. Deliancourt, who has developed iPhone apps, uses terms like UI. It means the look and, in his case, the sound and feel of using the iPhone. Once people learned the basics of making calls, texting, and writing emails, they started downloading apps. All kinds of apps. Instapaper, OO Tunes, Pocket Yoga, Twitterific, and Purr were just a few of the new iPhone apps people told me they got right away. Purr, in case you're wondering, did just that when you tapped or petted the screen. Like software on the Mac computer, some apps were accessible, some were not. If an app didn't work with VoiceOver, you'd hear something like... If you bought an app and it turned out not to work with VoiceOver, you were out the money you'd paid. As the internet has done since the beginning of online time, communities form to praise good apps and offer warnings about bad ones. Holly Anderson couldn't get AT&T cell service at her home in rural Tennessee, so she found another way to be involved in the community of online voiceover users. I was like, well, I can't have a phone, so maybe I'll just start making a list of apps that are accessible. Because I was thinking, you know, there'd be a few here and there. It quickly got way out of hand. When the iPod Touch became accessible to voiceover a few months later, Anderson got one. People with the means to buy an iPhone in 2009 remember it as an exciting and transformative time. But you wouldn't have known that if you read most of the mainstream press. Accessibility was rarely mentioned, even in the tech press. New York Times columnist David Pogue spared a few words for voiceover on his blog, and a few podcasts, including macOS Ken, the MacCast, and Macworld's Chris Breen, got plugged in inviting blind and low-vision iPhone owners on to explain why accessibility was such a big deal. 
in the larger blindness community, there was skepticism, some of which seemed very healthy, given Apple's accessibility missteps of the past and the company's frequent unwillingness to let people know of its plans. The fact that voiceover was just mentioned in that fleeting way gave me cause for concern. And one of the things I was really worried about at the time was, is this 3GS version of voiceover just going to sit there and kind of languish for years and years and years to come so that they can go to purchasers and government entities and say, yeah, we've got a screen reader. We introduced it in 2009. For Apple skeptics like Mosin and those who simply weren't interested enough to try voiceover, the proof the company was serious about accessibility came in 2010 when the next phone and an updated version of the software, iOS 4, was released. It included the ability to connect a Bluetooth keyboard or a Braille device to the iPhone and a more efficient method of typing on screen with voiceover. When they did that, what that said to me was this kind of feature set must clearly be because they're listening to what users said they wanted because these are just really obvious things. And at that point, I did think, all right, you know, uh, my, my skepticism was perhaps not warranted. This is evolving nicely. And it was at that point when iOS 4 came out that I made an iPhone my primary device. 2010 was also the year the iPad made its debut and Apple began selling electronic books. The big thing on the iPad was when uh, iBooks happened. That opened up a whole level of possibilities as far as like, these are books we can get that are not specifically accessible. Because the iBooks app was accessible, a voiceover user or a teacher working with blind students could get any book Apple offered and hear it read aloud on the iPad. By then, the mainstream tech gadget that people with disabilities had once been unable to use at all was entering the disability mainstream. And people's expectations increased as the iPhone became more central to their lives and work. In fact, people were making apps that were specifically designed for voiceover users and people with low vision. They ranged from navigation apps that gave detailed walking directions and points of interest to tools that used the camera to identify objects, speak their colors, and scan text. You know, when you can bring up an app and you can show it something in print and almost immediately it'll tell you what it is or tell you the lights are on or the lights are off. And this is all coming from one device that you hold in your hand that 10 years ago was not possible. Quinn wrote a GPS app to help her navigate during desert hikes. When a company offered to purchase the app, she began a new career. The accessibility of the iPhone changed my life because now I'm working as a professional software developer. As more people adopted the iPhone, expecting to be able to use any app they could download, the problem of inaccessible apps grew more noticeable. The availability of the iBooks app from Apple, for example, shined a bright light on Amazon's Kindle reading app, which didn't work with VoiceOver until 2013. What did it take to make an app voiceover friendly? Marco Arment created Instapaper and currently develops the Overcast podcast player. You know, I was working on Instapaper and I got a report from somebody once that said, hey, if you use this app under voiceover, there's these four buttons that aren't labeled or something like that. Like, you know, some mistake I had made that affected voiceover. And that's when I started realizing, oh, this is this whole different type of using the app that I haven't considered. Instapaper, an app you use to save articles from the web for later reading, was a natural fit for voiceover users. Court says it's the first non-Apple app he installed on his new iPhone. It was mine, too. What Armit had discovered is that without his doing anything, the app worked with voiceover. 
but he needed to do a little work to ensure there were no blind spots. You could get about sort of 80, 85 percent of the way with very little effort. The, the important thing was realizing that accessibility is important and getting into the mindset of applying it rather than it being any kind of technical challenge. Matt Gemmel was another software developer who took an accidental interest in voiceover. I wasn't particularly conscious of accessibility at all. And then when I was, I think when I was about sort of 30 or 31 years old, I had a, a vision-related scare. Gemmel's doctors thought he had the type of macular degeneration that usually impacts people as they age. Afraid of what vision loss could mean for his life and work, Gemmel tried using an iPhone without looking at it, with only voiceover to guide him. Learning that he could still navigate the phone helped him process what he thought was going to happen to him. So he started writing accessible apps and creating components he shared freely with other developers. I can't name apps offhand, but for a number of years there, whenever you opened the About box or Pane in an app, you know, more likely than not, my name was in there someplace. Gemmel no longer makes software. He's writing novels, pursuing a lifelong dream. But he still pops up online, still interested in voiceover and accessibility generally. And it turned out that he didn't lose his vision. As time passed, the iPhone, iPad, and their software grew and changed. New accessibility features like guided access, which many teachers use to facilitate learning for kids on the autism spectrum, and support for connecting hearing aids to an iPhone were added. And in 2013, when iOS 7 was released, features for people with physical disabilities joined the ranks. iOS accessibility was no longer just about blindness or low vision. Switch control is a feature that allows individuals with very extreme physical motor limitations to be able to use our technology. So, you know, in the same way that voiceover became a way by which you could use a touchscreen without having to see the screen, switch control became a way to use the touchscreen if you were never going to actually touch the touchscreen. Apple's Sarah Herlinger calls out switch control, which allows you to control an iPhone or iPad with multiple external buttons, or switches, as one of the platform's most important accessibility innovations, along with made-for-iPhone hearing aids and voiceover. There have been stumbles. iOS 7, which included a major change in the way the iPhone screen looked, was initially a setback for some people with low vision. The highly stylized, transparent screens, the thin fonts, and animated app icons sent some accessibility users reeling, and irritated a lot of people with standard vision, too. Apple had added new accessibility options in iOS 7, probably expecting that they would represent a step forward. But the company had to beef up those features to address the problems low-vision users were having. And it wasn't until iOS 7 that added a lot of these visual preferences that a lot of people actually use just out of preference. It started getting on developers' radars that, oh, there's this whole section of settings over here called accessibility that changed the way my app looks or works, and I need to make sure that it doesn't break under those settings. The number of inaccessible or partially accessible apps that remained available in the App Store suggests that Armin is more conscientious than some software makers when it comes to support for voiceover and dynamic type, a feature that lets the user adjust font sizes on screen. But he is far from the only developer who has worked to make accessible software. And Armit thinks Apple could help. I think testing for voiceover, dynamic type, and the other basic accessibility features should be part of app review. 
When a developer submits software to be added to the Apple App Store, it must pass app review before it goes on sale. Armit is not alone in advocating a requirement, or at least disclosure, about whether an app is voiceover friendly. Blindness organizations have advocated that Apple encourage or require third-party app accessibility. By 2016, Apple was secure enough in its position as a leader in accessibility that it led off an important launch event with a video illustrating the ways people with all kinds of disabilities were using its products. Like much of the theater Apple uses to promote itself, the high profile for accessibility then, at its subsequent events, was designed to instill warm feelings about the company among the largely non-disabled audience. But for people who use the accessibility features of iPhones and iPads every day, the hype was usually backed up by substance. And I think that trust and confidence should be earned. And over the years, while there have been bugs and glitches uh, where voiceover is concerned, they have certainly earned my trust and my confidence. I think they, they undisputedly provide the best mobile accessibility experience by a long way. Android's not even close. It's also possible that Apple's push to build accessibility into its industry-leading tech gadgets has had an effect on other companies building devices for mainstream audiences. I mean, now I have a talking DirecTV DVR, and I think if it wasn't for Apple showing people that it is possible for mainstream products to promote and develop accessibility, I don't know if that would be as, as prominent as it is. It's difficult to prove that there's a direct line between the iPhone that could speak in 2009 and a DVR that talks today. But Apple has clearly had an impact. This year, Microsoft, Google, and Apple have all held events for people who develop software for their platforms. During splashy keynotes, leaders of each company talked about accessibility. And though there's a long way to go before accessibility supports all users at all times on all devices, the topic is less often relegated to the end of a long event. And the people who speak about lowering barriers to all are a lot less tentative than Phil Schiller was in 2009. 36 Seconds That Changed Everything, How the iPhone Learned to Talk, was written and produced by Shelley Brisbane, with audio production and mixing by Patrick Perdue, and music by Andre Louis. Special thanks to Marco Arment, Holly Anderson, Darcy Bernard, Adam Christensen, Josh DeLioncourt, James Dempsey, Joy Diaz, Anna Dresner, Matt Gemmel, Sarah Herlinger, Lori Lotus, Jonathan Mosen, David Pogue, and Steve Sawson. You'll find a written transcript of this program and lots of bonus content and interviews at 36seconds.org. This program is copyright 2019 by Shelley Brisbane. Thanks for listening. <laughs>